As I've started the introspective study of my life since the documentary I created 17 years ago, I don't want to stray from my initial inspiration that catapulted me into my fascination with law enforcement and hip-hop, but more specifically, the nuances, perception, and uneven legal ground created by criminal prosecutors using lyrics and their visuals to pursue their criminal cases. Like the secret book I found, the use of song lyrics or the use of a music video to create a criminal narrative seemed as odd to me today as it did back in 2005. Art imitating life or life imitating art. These questions I still struggle with as my understanding has deepened. Drill rap came under renewed scrutiny after 18-year-old artist Jaquan McKinley's murder earlier this month, leading Mayor Adams to call for the music's removal from social media. Violent people who are using drill rapping to post who they killed and then antagonize the people who they are going to kill is what the problem is. People look at the videos or listen to the lyrics and stuff. It's going to be characterized as, you know, talking about guns, talking about money. While Bleezy admits some artists go too far. If you ain't experienced poverty, you shouldn't even have your opinion on anybody's moment. Bleezy says he focuses on the hardships in Brownsville, adding addressing the real root of violence goes well beyond any lyrics. The community is like, it's, 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 it's like, there's no hope, there's no opportunities, no, we're just making music so we could get out of these places. The meeting with Mayor Adams ended with a handshake. The mayor said that a new initiative in partnership with the rappers will be rolled out in a few days. Andrea Klein-Thomas, CBS 2 News. And the mayor admits to just learning about the genre of music from his son and said he was happy to speak to the various artists. Jay Lee, who wrote the aforementioned New York Times article, opens the piece with the story of Tommy Munswell Kennedy, an aspiring rapper from Racine, Wisconsin. And when I say aspiring, I mean he uploaded a few songs to SoundCloud, a feat my 10-year-old niece can do. Police in Racine were looking for suspects in three recent shootings. One of the victims, Samar McLean, who was 19 at the time, was found dead with a bullet in his temple. An online rap song that turned out to be sort of a confession, and now a Racine County teenager is facing a murder charge. That 15-year-old is charged as an adult. He is accused of robbing and killing 19-year-old Samar McLean. Fox 6's Brett Lemoyne live in Racine now with new details. Good evening, Brett. Good evening, guys. Yeah, prosecutors say that rap song includes lyrics about killing McLean. It was posted online just two days after the homicide. State of Wisconsin versus uh, Tommy M. Candidate. He sits with his head down as family members of the man Tommy Candidate is charged with killing look on in disbelief. Just why? Like, what was your purpose? My brother ain't do nothing to nobody. On July 29th, Racine police say Candidate met with Samar McLean to trade or sell each other's handguns. Within a half an hour, police were called to the 1300 block of Blake Avenue. McLean was found dead with a single gunshot wound to the head. It was a cold, uh, 
heartless, heinous act here. Witnesses came forward saying they saw the two men together that afternoon. A search of Kennedy's apartment allegedly turned up both handguns, but it was another major tip to police. Placing a rap video out online basically bragging about what he did here. That makes McLean's family sick. You wonder how can a person just do something like that and just be okay with it, like, it don't make sense. Investigators discovered a rap song allegedly posted online by Canada. Lyrics include references to McLean running away as a bullet is fired toward him. The police were coming up empty, no fingerprints, no weapons, and no eyewitnesses. However, the stepfather of McLean contacted the police about a song he'd heard on SoundCloud where Samar's name was mentioned and where the murder was referenced. A week later, Tommy Kennedy was arrested by a SWAT team for the murder of Samar McLean. In reading the article, is it possible that the police made such an arrest without any evidence outside of the song on SoundCloud? I needed to investigate this in more detail, as that just sounds crazy. I reached out to the writer, Jay Lee, to see if she would come on the show. I am awaiting word back. As I delved deeper into the article, it was like deja vu of my earlier pursuits. Even within the New York City Police Department, there are obvious problems with a particular unit being devoted just to the hip hop industry. To make matters more complex, both Anthony Miranda and Eric Adams, veteran NYPD officers, claim they themselves were put under surveillance by the department. Even within the New York City Police Department, there are obvious problems with a particular unit being devoted just to the hip-hop industry. To make matters more complex, both Anthony Miranda and Eric Adams, veteran NYPD officers, claim they themselves were put under surveillance by the department. We don't know the extent of the surveillance. We don't know if they actually tapped our phone, but they did monitor our phone records. They looked, did look into who we spoke to. They did follow us. The standard is so low now that they can surveil anybody they want to and justify it. And then later on say, oh, I'm sorry. But what are you sorry about exactly? Taking pictures of my wife, taking pictures of my kid, taking pictures of my babysitter? What part of that are you sorry about? Six months into my research of the interaction between law enforcement and the hip hop industry, and after filing a total of 12 Freedom of Information Act requests, I stopped receiving my mail for a period of a month and a half. No letters, no bills, no junk mail, no catalogs, nothing. A few weeks later, all my mail showed up. Coincidence or not, there was a letter from the IRS. I was personally being audited. 2004 or 2005, the NYPD was a different organization. Giuliani was still a hero, and the illustrious police force had been cleaned up and allowed a gentrified New York to bloom. Eric Adams, now the mayor of New York, was just an NYPD sergeant in Brooklyn when I first interviewed him. Although I thought that the hip-hop cops was a sexy sell to Hollywood, I still subconsciously felt I was trying to say something deeper about how law enforcement was evolving at that time. Hip hop or not, the relationship between America and the police was nowhere near the crisis level it is today. In my thought process, I must have thought that the creation of this unit was infringing on people's civil rights. And that was the path I tried to go down. 
but it became apparent at the time that I simply wasn't sophisticated enough to pull it off. While filing a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests at the time, some weird things did happen. Six months into my research of the interaction between law enforcement and the hip hop industry, and after filing a total of 12 Freedom of Information Act requests, I stopped receiving my mail for a period of a month and a half. No letters, no bills, no junk mail, no catalogs, nothing. A few weeks later, all of my mail showed up. Coincidence or not, there was a letter from the IRS. It was personally being audited. Dave Burnham, author of A Law Unto Itself, Power of Politics and the IRS. Why a book on the IRS? Well, I think the IRS is the single most powerful instrument of social control in the United States. I think it's one of the two or three most powerful law enforcement agencies in the world. It's 123,000 people now. That's five times bigger than the FBI. That's twice the size of the CIA. It has far more formidable legal powers than the FBI. The Congress, in its wisdom, has given the IRS just ferocious legal powers to take documents, to uh, make what they call jeopardy assessments, what have you. It has more information about more of us than any other organization. And you put that all together, and as I say, I think you have the single most powerful uh, law enforcement agency in this country. Back then, I didn't have a nickel to my name. Yet, for obvious reasons, I was suddenly being audited by the IRS. This audit would be a reoccurring event throughout my work. I've now been audited three times by the IRS, which to me is mesmerizing. Or, I just have a bad bookkeeper. Today, things like this don't faze me, but dealing with it as a young filmmaker and journalist was eye-opening. Did someone inside the Justice Department care that I had these documents? I mean, let's be real here. The woman who sent me the hip-hop dossier did it illegally by leaking the book and the documents. Also, the NYPD at that time didn't give a fuck as they prided themselves on telling journalists to take a hike. Hindsight is 2020, as they say, but I'm still compelled to tell these stories that intersect and populate the cultural zeitgeist as it relates to criminal sentencing, drug laws, and incarceration. Very recently, on a visit to the federal prison in Allenwood, Pennsylvania, I felt myself slipping into a depression over the casualties of the drug war. Young kids who made bad choices, but not choices that should result in 40 years for nonviolent drug offenses. Today, I can make the argument, if you choose to become a soldier in the war on drugs, and you killed another soldier, maybe that should be looked at differently. We anoint our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan heroes, but here in America, in our own war, you're not a hero, but a pariah. Now, at 46 years old, that emotional baggage and realization is beginning to weigh on my psyche. Since the war on drugs began, African Americans have been arrested for drug offenses at five times the rate of white offenders. And yet, on average, Caucasians commit more drug crimes. Part of the reason for this discrepancy has been attributed to unfair drug sentencing laws, specifically targeted toward minorities and the poor. 
1986, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill that authorized the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. This enacted mandatory minimum sentences for convictions concerning a number of drugs, including two forms of cocaine. Crack cocaine, which was cheaper and more commonly used by the lower class, carried a mandatory minimum sentence of five years for five grams. For the more expensive powdered cocaine, one would need 500 grams for the same sentence. This 100 to 1 disparity, along with other similar drug laws, skyrocketed the number of minority drug arrests. Only in 2010 did President Barack Obama authorize a bill that lessened the gap in drug sentencing. The Drug Policy Alliance reports that annually, the U.S. spends more than $51 billion on the war on drugs, and in 2013 arrested 1.5 million people on nonviolent drug charges. In fact, some estimates place the total amount spent by the federal government on the war on drugs as high as a trillion dollars. And yet, addiction rates have been unaffected, drug prices have dropped considerably, and the U.S. has the highest incarceration rates in the world. In 2010, more than half of all federally incarcerated prisoners were serving drug-related sentences. The viewpoint I had in 2005 is startlingly the same viewpoint I have now. The corporate money is all too willing to promote violence or sign record deals of artists who they know are on the verge of jail, an indictment, or worse, death. The analogy of traveling too close to the sun is what hip-hop has always been about. Now, hip-hop is a global superpower, no longer fighting for mainstream acceptance, but therein lies the rub. It seems that the violence that now exists in hip-hop has taken on a more drastic and shocking spin. What I was investigating in 2005 maybe was more myth than truth, more stealthy than public, but the death, shootings, and attachment to gang culture that exists now is in your face. Hip-hop is mainstream popular culture. It is Madison Avenue, and the powers that be realize that too much is at stake. Multi-million dollar licensing deals with Reebok, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and other luxury brands that are endorsed by the stars. P. Diddy even visited Wall Street for the Warner Music IPO in 2005. We've been able to prove to the rest of the planet that we're trendsetters and that other people can profit off of it. So I think people, to a degree, at this point in time, are starting to look at us as a money machine. The major corporations and European conglomerates who buy and sell hip-hop culture distance themselves legally from the problems, sitting back collecting checks and keeping their financial interests safe. This was never more evident than with the indictment of Murder, Inc. Records and Irv Gotti. At its peak, it was a company darling for its parent, Universal Def Jam, grossing $200 million per year in record sales. At the time of the Murder, Inc. case in 2005, where the company's bosses, Chris and Irv Gotti, who were arrested for money laundering, were convicted of those charges they inevitably beat, they would be right in federal prison next to Kenneth Supreme McGriff, the known drug czar, who it's alleged they were laundering money for. As I covered in the Rap Sheet documentary, Irv and his brother Chris beat the Eastern District at trial, which, if you know anything about federal trials, is a minor miracle. Let me recharacterize that. It's a major miracle. Irv is a television producer just like me and has been shopping in Hollywood the story of the Supreme Team and Kenneth Supreme McGriff, their myths, and this era of time that was so profound. P. 
People have been chasing these stories for more than 20 years. 50 Cent at the time was hip-hop's largest star and very much under surveillance by the hip-hop cops. He now uses all those stories to feed his power TV universe and his new show, BMF. But for 50 Cent, the conundrum is profitable. He's reaping the rewards over the question of, is hip-hop imitating life or is it art? 